moving through the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be finishing it up shortly, and there's just some, a lot of great stuff crammed into these final chapters of the book of Matthew. I couldn't remember. I know we started chapter 18, but I was thinking we made it through like verse 5, but we might have made it through verse 9. I don't remember, but we'll look at those verses again. Jesus was already talking about how valuable children were and that of such was the kingdom of heaven. And he says in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he'd be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. The offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. So in the context of talking about how important the young ones are to him, he says, the world is going to be judged because of the stumbling that they inflict on its young people. And he says, you personally, if you're involved in this kind of offense, you've got to do whatever you have to do in order to stop that from happening. And he gives the illustration of if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, he's not telling people to do that literally. That wouldn't make sense. He's talking about things that offend. Obviously, if my hand does something wrong, it's not my hand that's offending. So to cut off my hand wouldn't keep me from doing it again. I would just have to get more creative about how I would do it. If I, if I punch somebody with my right hand, so I cut my right hand off, well, I'd learn to punch with my left hand and, or headbutt or something else. And so he, he isn't saying literally to do this, but what he's saying is take it so seriously that you don't do anything to stumble or offend. And we're not talking about minor offenses here, of course. What he's talking about is the things that happen that could stand in the way of some young person, some child or young person, falling away from a knowledge of the Lord, tripping them up, causing them to be so hurt and offended that they don't want to have anything to do with Christianity anymore. And we have to, we, it's so important that we take this mandate seriously, that we think about how are we treating our own children? How are we treating the children around us? How are we reaching out to other children that we know in our neighborhood, in our church? Because if we do things that cause them to turn off to the Lord, he says, believe me, you'd be better off without a hand. You'd be better off having a millstone be hung around your neck and being cast to the bottom of the sea. I think of all the adults who are just so messed up because of legalistic religious trips that adults put on them when they were kids. I think of all the uh, abused and molested children who get a warped perspective of what a father is because of what a man in their life, a father, a stepfather, a neighbor, uncle, does to them, stumbling them and causing them to have a hard time relating to God as their loving father because they haven't had a loving father. And you see it more and more. I don't know if it's increasing or if we're just becoming more aware of it. But the fact is anyone who does something to inflict offense, to hurt, to maim, to damage a child, you're in sad shape. And whatever you have to do to stop that, absolutely do it. There are some people who for one reason or another in their warped senses that they're attracted to children in an unhealthy way. And if that's the case, it's so important that people like that remove themselves completely from being around children. And I, I hate to say it like this, I wouldn't want it to be misunderstood, but I think sometimes that there, is, there are radical things that need to happen to remove someone from a situation where they might offend a child. If he uses the illustration of cutting off arms and legs and plucking out eyes, we have to do whatever we have to do. And I'm telling you, if there's someone, I don't expect there's anyone here who struggles with this problem, but if there was, I would say to you, and I have said to people in counseling before, you have to do whatever 
it takes to stop it. Even if that means removing yourself completely from being around people. And uh, you've got to wonder whether or not you even want to live in a family or live in, a, in society if this is what you do. I heard someone saying one time, sometimes if this is your problem, sometimes you just have to lean in over the plate and take one for the home team. You know, because we cannot take a chance. If this is something you're struggling with, you can't take a chance of putting yourself in a situation where this might happen. People are notorious repeat offenders. Now, I believe in the grace of God. I believe in God's forgiveness. I believe that old things can be passed away and all things become new. But I've seen over the years, many times where there are people who repent and, and it's not just in the Catholic Church either, it's in the Christian Church as well, talk a good game and yet they have a weakness in this area. Well, if Jesus would say it's better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be cast to the bottom of the sea and then says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out, then I would say if that's a problem that you have, remove yourself completely from that temptation. That's not a normal temptation. I don't know why you're tempted to do something like that to a child, but please, if you've done it, don't do it anymore. Get yourself out of the situation where it can't possibly happen. Don't tempt fate. Jesus loves kids, and he's looking out for them, and he will not tolerate people who abuse them, people who molest them, people who damage them. That's not something that's to be tolerated at all. And I frankly have no sympathy for adults who hurt children. I just don't. Maybe I should. Most sins I, I look at and I go, hey, I can understand. But I really have a hard time with this one. And I think Jesus did too. It's just something that is, I don't know that it gets any worse than that. And, and that's the point that Jesus is trying to drive home. And I'm not saying if you've had a struggle with this that God won't forgive you. I'm just saying maybe I won't. So that's okay. If that's my weakness, I'm just being honest with you. Don't come and expect sympathy from me if you're doing something to hurt children. I might hurt you. And then I'll ask forgiveness and God will forgive me. So, <laughs> And please believe me, I'm not making light of it. I'm not kidding. Matthew chapter 18, now as we get down to verse 10, he says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Don't look at kids and think, eh, they're just little kids. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So he says, first of all, you don't want to despise these kids or take them lightly because in heaven, their angels behold the face of the Father. Now, this passage of Scripture is not an easy one to understand. Traditionally, in Christianity and church history, this is the Scripture that's been used, among others, to come up with the idea of a guardian angel. And the idea is here that people would say, and I don't think it's absolutely dictated by the text, but it certainly sounds that each child, at least, has an angel that's assigned to them. And that angel is in heaven beholding the face of the Father. Now, you're thin on evidence for guardian angels for anyone else, although we know that the angels, that's their job, they're ministering spirits, so it fits. But as to having them individually assigned, the only other place is over in Acts chapter 12 when Peter was in prison and he was released and the little girl went to the door right, and was saying, hey, Peter's out there, and they're saying, ah, it's got to be his angel. That's the only other scripture that I know of that indicates an angel that belongs to someone personally. And... and um, that one's kind of weak. This one, I mean, I'll tell you this, I really like the idea if there are guardian angels for each child, and I hope that we don't ever grow out of them. I hope to find out someday that there was an angel that was assigned to each of us. I know I've put mine to the test enough times, and I'm sure you have too. At any rate, we know that angels are operating in our lives, and they're certainly protecting our children. As to whether each one has a personal one, I don't know. This passage would kind of seem to indicate that. Grammatically, it seems like the most obvious understanding of the passage. And since angels don't grow older, I hope they hang around with us for, for a time. You do want to be careful not to make too much of this because the fact is God chooses not to be constantly intervening on our behalf. I mean, when you talk about guardian angels, then you have to say, 
Well, where was mine when this happened to me? If, when I was a little child, I had a guardian angel, um, why, why didn't he stop this person from hurting me? Why didn't he, why didn't he keep me from getting into this situation? And I don't know. I really don't. I wish I did. But what I know is that the angels are looking at the face of the Father. And as they're beholding his face, they're in the presence of God. They have a position of authority and access to the ruler of the universe. And as they're watching his face, they're waiting for him to just say the word and they go into action. And I'm sure they spring into action more than we'll ever know. As to those times when the father looks at the angels and says nothing, doesn't give that command, it's a fallen world. It's a mess. I can't explain it. I don't, I don't like it. I wish, well, I pray that God's kingdom will come so his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that all the time. Right now, it's not that way. And so a lot of bad things are happening. And yet, he says, realize this. There are angels that are connected to those kids, and they're looking at the face of the Father. But not only that, a second reason for them to not take kids for granted and, and devalue them. He says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strain? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So, he says, not only are there angels beholding the face of the Father, but the heart of the Father is such that when a sheep is lost, he wants to hunt it down, even if he deserts the 99 in order to go find the one. That shows you what his heart is. And then he says, but don't you think the God that wants everyone to be saved, all of those lost to be found, don't you think that it makes sense that it's the will of your father that not one of these little ones should perish? And so that kind of reminds us that it's not just our job to hunt down the lost, but it's also our job to value those who are already found, who are already there. I think it's as much a mandate for us as, as adults, as parents, to protect our own children, to protect the youth that are under our care, as it is to be obsessed with going and finding the lost ones. Says the heart of the Father is such that he wants them all to be found, so he certainly doesn't want the ones that he has to perish. It's his heart. That's, his, that's what's important to him. Now, imagine facing God after being one of the ones who has chased them away. And the disciples had to learn this several times when they tried to shoo the kids away, and Jesus was always saying, no, let them come to me. But imagine facing God and explaining why one of these little sheep that he loves so much that you intentionally, now, come on, we all make mistakes. We're all going to offend our kids in some way. And it's a miracle that any of them ever turn out halfway decent. But we're talking about intentionally laying something in their path that's going to destroy them, that's going to push them away from a walk with the Lord. God, Jesus here says, don't even go there. Don't do that. You're going to answer for that. Don't you see? It's the heart of the Father. He wants everyone to be found. There are some people who are old enough to make their own decision and walk away, and that's not according to his will. He isn't willing, willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But again, he's saying, but remember, every one of those children, that's someone that he wants to find. Oh, you can look at certain young people with our Joplin outreach coming up. You look at these kids, and often they look like gangbangers. They're way more mature than they ought to be at their age. And you can look at them and easily just write them off. Easily just say, you know what? It's a sad story, but, you know, they're losers. They're not. Most of them that we minister to, even when they accept the Lord, they end up going back into their neighborhoods, getting back in their gangs. And, and it's, just, it's just like pouring you know, your time and your money down a black hole to try to reach these kids. What we need to do is protect our kids from them. But understand this. The heart of our father is he looks at every one of those kids. I don't care how messed up they are. I don't care what they've been through. I don't care how much hurt and pain they've suffered or inflicted. 
And he says, I don't want to lose them. I'll risk the 99 even to hunt down the ones who are lost. And so for us, I think, how could we have a more important priority than to find kids who have so much life ahead of them and see if there's some way that we can reach them. Are we going to reach them all? No. Are we going to reach most of them? Probably not. But Jesus values every single one of them. And so you might look and say, guy, you know, if, we, if we've done 30 of these Joplin outreaches and, you know, several kids have accepted the Lord, but most of them have gone back. But there's a couple of them that are actually walking with the Lord, but is it really worth it? It is to him. It is to God. One, one lost sheep. As far as he's concerned, now the fold's not complete and he wants to hunt them down. So how much is our heart to hunt down the lost? How much of, of our heart is affected by his heart? Do we care as much as he does? Well, no, we don't. But he wants to infect us with his heart. He, God has this it's almost a disease, I say that reverentially, but he, he has an obsession with hunting down the lost. And if we allow him to touch our hearts, then we will take on a similar obsession. Not to force them in, not to hammer them down, but to be there to make sure we don't lose the ones we have and, and to hunt down the ones who are lost. I'll tell you something, the people who work with kids and... Uh, whether it's nursery kids, whether it's teaching children's ministry in the different ages, whether it's working with junior high kids or high school kids or college career kids, those who haven't fully formed who they are and gone out in life, I don't know of a higher calling than that. I really don't. And I don't just say that because I've devoted the bulk of my life to that. I say it because it seems to be what Jesus says. To be able to make a difference in the lives of kids I can't imagine a greater privilege than that. I remember I was talking to a guy today on the phone who was there for me when I was young. And he hung in there with me. And I was going through a lot of rough times. But the guy in the little church that I grew up in, he was the only guy that really believed in me and really supported me. And I was talking to him today. And it reminded me again of the day when one time after I had spoke at a retreat, I was driving down the mountain and I had just stopped my car. And this guy, Art Carlson, came to my mind because he was the only guy, really. I mean, I, most of all the guys in the church were scared to death of me. I was, even as a Christian, a pretty intimidating, imposing figure because of just the life that I had lived. And, but I pulled over my car and I started thinking about Art. And I, and I was praying for him. And then I, it's really when I committed my life to ministry completely because I, I told the Lord that night, I said, if I can be what Art Carlson was to me, if I could be like that in the life of one kid in my life, then my life will have fulfilled a purpose. That's all I would want. And God's blessed me. I've been able to be involved with thousands of kids' lives. But, and I just don't believe there's anything that matters more than that. Because there's nothing in this world that matters more to God than the future, the kids, and if we get to where there's no place for them, they're an inconvenience, we need to shuffle them out of the way so that we can get the real people in here, then we've lost sight of the heart of our Father. If I keep preaching like this, we'll never get through even one chapter. Now in chapter 18 here, we come up with this great passage that most people know Matthew 18 for. And it's the passage that talks about when you have a problem with somebody, what do you do? And it says, moreover, if your brother sins against you. Now, whenever there's a difference between me and someone else, it's always that he's sinned against me. I don't ever sin against him. It's always his fault. That's just the way we look at things. So that's the way he words it. You got a problem and you think the guy's sinned against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. So first of all, there's a problem that you have between a person. He's saying, don't bring other people into it. Have you gone and talked to this person personally? It's one of the toughest commandments in the Bible, I think, is this order that's established in Matthew 18. Because when someone does something against me, I can't wait to line up support. I can't wait to tell other people. And there are clever ways of doing it. We all do this. You go talk to somebody else to ask for advice. 
I can't tell you how many times when someone comes to me for counseling, my answer is, have you gone and talked to the person? How about Matthew 18? Coming to the church first instead of going to the person first. Now, it seems logical that, and, and I'm not saying that in every case, sometimes we don't need to ask for advice before we step into a delicate situation and how we're going to handle it. But basically, what Jesus is saying here is, if you have a problem with the person, go to the person. This is the way I want you to deal with it. And the chances are it's all a misunderstanding. It can be straightened out. It can be healed. You've won your brother. He's won you. Everything's fine, and nobody else has been involved in it. But the more people that you talk to, the more complicated it becomes. Because now if you find out that, whoops, it's not that way, how do you even go back and talk to the people you talk to and the people they talk to, all of them, you know, legitimately desiring just to pray for you and wondering how it's doing. And, and then people's memories play funny things. So, you know, you, you know you heard something bad about the person. You don't remember exactly what it is. And all of this junk gets put within us. And see, when I come and tell you, you know, I'm concerned about Rick Nagura. Because there are some issues that, you know, I can't talk to you anymore. And then you're going, you're thinking about Rick, and he's up here leading worship, and you're going, wow, I wonder what. See, I, I use him as an illustration, because if there was anything I was concerned about, Rick, obviously I'm not going to say it here in a sermon. So, you know, it should be no fault that way. But if I said that to you personally, you'd start thinking, I wonder what it is. I wonder what the problem is. Man, I bet it's something really bad. And maybe even if I tell you what it is and then I go and find out, well, it wasn't quite that way. Once that seed's planted in your mind about a person, it's an awful thing. We become, we're so prone to be prejudiced anyway. And then when a little bit of fuel is added to the fire, it just makes things so much worse. So Jesus said, go to the person. A basic rule of thumb, and I think there are some exceptions, okay, so you pray about this, but a basic rule of thumb is if there is someone that you're at odds with, go to them but I don't think they're going to listen. That's okay. Go to them. Do that. That's your first step. If you haven't talked to them about the problem, then you really don't have business talking to anyone else about it. Now, again, we're talking about people within the body. It's different if there's someone outside the body. Maybe you'd be casting your pearls before swine to bare your heart to them. But with brothers and sisters in the Lord, whether they be in your family, whether they be friends, or whether they be casual acquaintances, it's important that you go to them personally. There are some cases where that may not be practical, for instance, a, a public figure, you may see some evangelist say something on TV and you just go, that's so offensive. And yet you realize there's no way that you'd ever get access to the person. Although sometimes you'd be surprised who you can get access to if you try to do that. But we're talking in generalities with brothers. But if he won't hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So it's giving the benefit of the doubt. It's gone, I want to make sure that this isn't just me. It's getting someone neutral, maybe a couple people, to come and listen to the whole case. Let that other person say as much as they can say about what you've done and you share. And maybe they can come in and say, you know what, objectively, I can understand both sides here. I think we can help put this together. But he says, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, in those days, the church was basically a home fellowship. The assemblies met in homes. And so I think that there's a precedent here for, in some way, if two or three people and it still doesn't work, the issue isn't resolved, maybe bringing some more people into the situation. Not to prove that the guy's wrong. Not to convict them, not like a court of law that you come in with your flow charts and, and you know, showing that the glove doesn't fit and all that. No, it's just, it's just saying, let's see if we can get together with the body and work through this. The whole idea is for a healing in the relationship still. But he says, um, if he refuses even to hear the church... You get the body together on it and it still doesn't help. Then let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, just quit dealing with them. Don't have any more dealings with them. Stay away from them. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. 
again, you hear these passages a lot, but sometimes yanked out of context. These verses aren't really talking about where two or three are gathered together, then God's here. Um, and we often say, well, you know, there are only a few of us that showed up, but God's here because there are two or three of us. It's not really what it's talking about. It's true, but I'll go you one better. Where one of you are gathered together, there he is in the midst of you because he indwells us. He said he'd be with us always. So he isn't saying that two or three people, then God is there in some special mystical way. Not at all. And this binding and loosing isn't a big, you know, that whatever we ask, any prayer request, if we ask it, boom, he has to do it because we've got two or three people who are praying for it. No, in the context, what he's saying is here's the benefit, here's the need for the body to work together. In fact, as he says, if you agree on earth concerning anything in verse 19, that word for agree is the Greek word symphony. It's a word that means to harmonize. It means what we would think, playing music together. What he's saying is there's this incredible beauty when we get along together. Oh, you know, you might hear one person sing beautifully, but when you hear two people singing together and harmonizing, like Simon and Garfunkel who are getting back together for a, a tour, and maybe you don't like them, but there's got to be someone you like who harmonizes well. There's just something about it where actually two voices get together and the, and the sum is equal to more, or the whole is equal to more than the sum of the parts. There's this harmony, and he says, that's what I want to do. And when you start to get together, and when you agree, that is, when you pray in my name, when there are multiple people who are listening to me, when they're doing things my way, they're desiring to see my will done, He's, he says, that's an incredible thing. That's a beautiful thing. And I'm in that. He says, I'm the one that can see you come together in beautiful harmony. And so what he's saying here, really, what he's teaching is nothing more or less than, you guys, you're supposed to get along. You're supposed to, if you'll work together, you can work things out, and I will be there, and you will pray together, asking in my name, in my identity, and I'm going to do beautiful things in your life. And that's how I want to work. And it all starts with, when there's a problem, realize the solution is between the two of you. Realize that leaving, that bailing, you know, how many times have you been bugged at someone? So what do you do? You just avoid them. You're just like, okay, I know better. I can't talk to them anymore. We're going to get into it again. So we can't talk about politics. And we can't talk about kids because they know what I think about the way they're raising their kids. And we can't talk about, you know, TV because they watch TV and I don't. And we can't talk about music because they don't like the music that I like. And I know they're going to go off on, oh, it's too loud or, oh, it's too soft or, oh, it's got a beat. Or, and so we just go, you know, there are some people we avoid certain subjects. And if we have to, we'll avoid those people completely. That's just what we do, we think, to keep the peace. But what Jesus is saying here is there may be a place for that, but if you haven't gone to them personally and tried to resolve it, if you haven't involved a couple, two or three others, and maybe a whole group of people, then you're not going to have that kind of harmony that I want you to have. You're not going to have the effectiveness that I expect you to have. It's not going to be a symphony. It's going to sound like a symphonic orchestra warming up or tuning where it's going, and that's the way the body's going to function. But he's going, when you guys get together, something amazing can happen. An authority, a power, a biblical presence can happen, and you together as a body can do way more than all of you together can do individually. As Benjamin Franklin said, either we'll hang together or certainly we will hang separately. And that's true with the body of Christ. If we're divided, and this isn't just in one assembly, I'm talking about if there are other Christians in other churches that bug you, that you can't stand. People you know who are Christians, but you really avoid them. Avoidance is the last step. It's after you've done all the other stuff. If it still didn't work, then fine, avoid. But most of the people we're avoiding, we don't need to avoid. If we would just sit down with them and level with them, everything would be fine. And the resentment that exists in the body of Christ between brothers and sisters is something that is abhorrent to Jesus. In John 17, as he was praying his high priestly prayer, he kept saying over and over again, let them be one as we are so the world will know that you've sent me. And as we allow ourselves to be divided, as we become offended by something, even if it's something wrong, and then we don't deal with it, oh man, all those little divisions pop up all over the body and pretty soon no one can be with anyone. 
you start looking at, you know, pairing up people even, or going, okay, for the dinner eight, who can we put together? Ooh, we can't put this couple with that couple because, you know, that thing. And ooh, these people don't get along very well with them. And these people get along really great, but they're such a clique that the rest of the group will be excluded. And you have to sit there playing chess with people. The body of Christ isn't supposed to be that way. We are supposed to be the kind of people who are, who are insisting on getting along on being together. And you may not like me, and you may be offended at a lot of what I do, but I'm your brother, and you're commanded to love me, and if I've sinned against you, you're commanded to forgive me. If you don't like that, tough. Going to another church isn't gonna change it. I'm still here. I'm still the person that you're at odds with, and we can't afford to have the body torn apart. One thing that I try to do if, there's, if I know someone who's left the church because of an offense or something like that, I, if I can, I try to get a hold of them and not to get them back in church. Quite often, I don't frankly want them back in church, but I want to make sure that every effort has been made so that we're friends. We're, we're okay. It's okay if you like to be somewhere different, you like a little different style, or if, if you finally had your fill of me, that's okay. Plenty of people before you have hit that point. But at the same time, if you want to be somewhere else, no hard feelings at all. That's totally fine. But let's do it as brothers. Let's do it peacefully. Let's not have all this baggage that we're carrying. And so that's what he was saying there. Hope that helps. He goes on, and this ties in with it directly, the parable of the unforgiving servant, the rest of the chapter. You got a guy who's a servant, and his master's going around checking the bills, and he finds out that there's one of his servants that owes him $17 million. Now, this is preposterous. How in the world would a servant end up owing his master that kind of money? Well, it's a parable. It's a story. He's just being ridiculous on purpose. But he goes to the guy, and he says, it's time to pay up $17 million. And he goes, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can't. Uh, well, actually, if you give me some time. He goes, time, I'm putting you in jail, you and your whole family. And the guy's going, just give me a break. Come on, I'll pay you back. Now, how in the world do you think you could pay back $17 million when you're working for like a dollar a day in those days? But the guy's saying that, and the master says, you know what? I'm having compassion on you, and I'm going to forgive you. I'll just write off the $17 million debt. And the guy goes, great, thanks, boss. And he leaves, and he goes, and he finds another servant that owes him 10 bucks. And he goes, pay up now. And he starts choking him, and he, he goes, if you don't pay me right now, the guy's going, come on, that's 10 bucks, I'll pay you. We, I can do it. Let me make, a, make it on installments. And he goes, no way. You're going to jail until you pay every penny. And he throws him in jail, and the master finds out about it because some other servants go, hey, remember the guy that you forgave the $17 million? He just threw one of his buddies in jail for 10 bucks. And the master was mad. And he came out, and he went and got that guy, and it says... In uh, verse 32, after he had called him, he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Now, how do you torture somebody enough that you get $17 million of satisfaction? I don't know. But he said, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is heavy. This is amazing when you talk about forgiveness. This is amazing when you talk about how much do we owe God for our eternal salvation, for him giving his son to die for us. And him saying, I forgive you. And now he's saying, even as Paul over in Ephesians said that, that we were to forgive each other. He said, he said um, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. It's the same thing. If, if he has forgiven you and he tells you to forgive others, how dare you not? And yet, over and over again, I see there are people who really struggle with forgiveness. There are times in my life when I struggle with forgiveness, when there's some little offense that comes to me, or a big offense, 
But none of them can hold a candle to what I did to him. I trampled the Son of God underfoot. I denied the Son of God. I looked at the cross and said, I don't need that. And since I've been forgiven all that I've done, there's nothing that you can do to me that's worse than what I've done to God. And so he's saying, get the picture. You've been forgiven so much. Why can't you forgive? It's why in the Lord's Prayer, as we saw earlier in Matthew, Jesus said, you know, that we will forgive. If, if we don't forgive, then God won't forgive us. I don't know what that means, but it's so irrational for us to not forgive. I, quite often when I'm counseling with people, I'll talk about forgiveness. And I'll go around and I'll ask the individual members of a family or something, are you willing to forgive? And you think, with that kind of a setup, I often even share this parable, it's like, of course, they're going to say they're going to forgive. And usually the people are smart enough, yeah, I'll forgive. But almost every time there's at least one person who can't even bring themselves to say, yes, I'll forgive. They'll say, I don't know, it's going to take time. I don't know, it's going to be tough. If they don't do this, then I won't. Where do we get that when we've been forgiven of so much? It should be a no-brainer. I will forgive you whatever you do to me because of what I've been forgiven. And that's the point that Jesus was trying to drive home here. And, and the disciples, you know, they didn't completely get it. But I'm sure it began to soak in. The whole story started when Peter said, hey, Lord, somebody offends us. Should we forgive them like seven times? He thought that was huge. And Jesus said, no. How about 70 times 7? 490 times. Now, if you've forgiven someone 487 times and you're going, oh, man, three more and then I can let them have it. <laughs> you didn't really forgive them. You didn't. How do you know how many it is? And he used such a big number as 490 because if you're checking them down, you're not forgiving. You know, the whole thing is he says, and again, as, as Paul said, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. It's not for the sake of you. It's not for the sake of the person who's sinned against you. It's for his sake. It's what he wants. It's what he needs. It's what we need as well. To be bitter, to not forgive people who have offended you and sinned against you, hurts you more than it hurts them. In fact, if someone does something mean to you and you're very bitter about it, then it's kind of a stalemate. They see you as a bitter person who won't forgive. You see them as the person who hurt them. It's important that we forgive because it's what we need. It's important for me to give some, forgive someone, even if they haven't apologized, even if they don't even understand what they did, not because they deserve it. Partly because I need it. Because if I carry that bitterness inside me, it will destroy me, not them. Someone has said, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for another person to die. You're killing yourself with your bitterness. And somehow thinking that that's going to hurt another person, and it never does. But ultimately, it's for Christ's sake. Ultimately, he says, I forgave you, and I want you to forgive. It's as simple as that. Whenever you're struggling with forgiveness, whenever you're struggling with letting go of something in the past, good time to check out this parable and ask yourself, what have I done to God compared to what this person has done to me? And he forgave me. He's forgiven me already. He didn't wait. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we were sorry. We're never going to be sorry enough. He hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do as they were killing them. And it's that kind of forgiveness that he has for us. It's that kind of forgiveness that we're commanded to have against others. Understand this, please. And, and I don't want to say this meanly or coldly. I know that it's hard to forgive people for some things. I know that the pain can become so deep and salt is so ground into the wound. I, I know it's difficult. But I just have to tell you this to be faithful to what God's word says. If there is someone right now that you haven't forgiven, that you haven't made that conscious decision to say, I forgive that person, then you're in sin. God commands us to do it. And he doesn't say do it for them. He says, do it for me. Now, as we get into chapter 19, we have this section where they tried to trap him talking about marriage and divorce. 
We're not going to be able to go into it in great detail, but let's read it. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees came to him and tested him and said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? They were trying to trick him because in Israel in those days, there were two basic rabbinical schools of thought on when divorce was permissible. Divorce had been mandated or had been permitted at least by Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And basically what Moses had said was, look, when you divorce a woman, you can't just put her out. You need to do something in writing. The idea was it gives you some cooling off time, a little bit of paperwork, a little bit of you know, bureaucracy, and maybe they would cool off and be okay together. So he was going, none of this easy divorce stuff. Um, it used to be a lot tougher in our country to get a divorce. and It's becoming easier all the time. But they were dealing with that in spades. In the Middle East, you can divorce your wife by just saying to her, get out of my tent, get out of my tent, get out of my tent. Three times she's gone. How did a woman throw the man out? Well, she couldn't, but that's a cultural thing. In Mark, Jesus talked about a woman divorcing a husband, so obviously the practice had developed by then. But basically, if you told her three times, that was it. She could consider herself divorced. And there was just a recent court case in the Middle East where, where they're deciding in, I can't remember which Middle Eastern country, but they're trying to decide whether that divorce law that says if you tell her three times to get out of the tent, or I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, that then you're divorced. Well, they're, they're questioning whether or not it's acceptable to instant message them or email them three times and tell them to get out of your tent. Seriously, it's a, they're having a, a court thing on whether you can just do it just over the computer so you don't actually have to face them and tell them personally that you divorced them. Well, that's the culture that they were, that they were living in at this point. And there were two basic schools of thought in Judaism, two basic rabbis. There was the Hillel school that basically said, if your wife doesn't please you in any way, yeah, you can divorce her. It's fine. And they look, if you look at like Deuteronomy chapter 24, you can see where they got the idea. It says, when a man, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and goes on to talk about if she marries somebody else, you can't marry her again. But the idea is, oh, there's some uncleanness in her. And they would just go, the Hillel school said, hey, she's not what you expected. You marry her, it's just, it ain't like it used to be. And being married isn't as fun as dating or, you know, you haven't really seen her without her makeup or something and, or without her veil, whatever. And, and it's, hey, fine, just divorce her, get rid of her while you're still young, go catch another one, turn her loose. And, and that was a major school of thought, the Hillel school. But you also had the Shammai school, which was the school that said, no, the only way you can divorce her is if there's adultery. If there's adultery, you can divorce. But what they were trying to do was to get Jesus to choose between one or the other, to get Jesus to say, Hillel is right or Shammai is right. And so they came and said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, haven't you read? Rather than go to the rabbis, he goes right to the source, to creation, and said, haven't you read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then... They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. He said, here's the deal. You want to know about divorce and remarriage? You want to know about how long you should stay married? Go back to the beginning when it was invented. And God said, no, the two become one flesh. You have people who are born as, as Siamese twins and are conjoined twins, I think they call them now because it has nothing to do with Siam at all. And they can be separated in some cases. But in other cases, they are sharing vital organs and there's no way. And often when they try to separate them, they both die. 
And Jesus is basically saying, there isn't any way to separate them. They're glued together. They cleave together. They're one flesh. So he's saying, as far as God's concerned, he invented marriage. And he just says, no, the two become one flesh. If you, if you rip yourselves apart, you'll destroy both of you. You'll do a lot of damage. So forget about that. Just stay married, he's saying. And that was not what they expected at all. But they came back and said, so why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And they thought they had him now because he's saying, God doesn't want divorce. As Malachi says, God hates divorce. So he says, then why did Moses give a bill of divorcement, according to Deuteronomy chapter 24? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So he says, in the Old Testament, Moses said, if you get a divorce, here's what you're going to do, because divorce was rampant. And because people were so stubborn, he said, look, if you divorce, here's what you need to do. But he said, that's not the way it ought to be. He said, actually, if you divorce for any reason other than, and the word here, pornia or, or fornication, except for that, that exception, you marry another, you're committing adultery. Now, there are people who would take this sexual immorality and say it means if someone that you're married to cheats on you, now you have a license to get out. Personally, I'm not sure about that. I don't believe that word can mean that, but can also have a much more specialized sense. And there are those theologians who, who would say that what they're talking about there is the exception is only if you marry someone and they've misrepresented themselves in their moral history or something like that, they represented themselves as a virgin and you find out that they aren't, that that kind of an annulment situation is the only exception. I tend to go along with that. It clouds, muddies the water a lot. But the reason why I do is that the response of the disciples was, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to even marry. They were going, whatever it was that Jesus said here. Now, if he had said, no, unless there's adultery, no divorce, then he's just in the Shammai school. That would have been the common, the most common view of the day, actually. And so for, for the disciples to hear him say, unless there's adultery, you know, and them to go, oh, man, forget it. I'm not even going to get married. It sounds like what he's saying to me is that, no, except for this extreme case where it's been a complete misrepresentation. And I, I've seen some of those kinds of cases. But basically, it seems more consistent with what he was saying before to say, I'm having a harder line than the Shammai or the Hillel school. I have a hard time with this passage and then making myself feel comfortable that even adultery is necessarily biblical grounds for divorce. But what is biblical grounds for divorce? Now, you can take the passage and just say, the hardness of hearts. You can go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and it talks about an unbelieving person who either consents to dwell with you or who, who doesn't. And you can come up with an excuse to pretty much dump almost anyone. Because there are days when we just don't dwell with each other very well. You certainly have a lot of people who violate their marriage vows. It may be. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not speaking authoritatively on this ex-cathedra from God. It might be that adultery is, is grounds for divorce because in a way when you have two become one and you're ripped apart, that's what Paul argues about going in with a prostitute. And he says, the problem is you become one with her. So if that's the case and you're married, I don't know. But here's the point. Here's the deal. There are going to be divorces. It's going to happen. It did in those days. And because of the hardness of people's hearts, there were ways to proceed. But what I believe Jesus is saying here is much more important than having a little set of rules of how you can get out of your marriage. What he's trying to say is marriage is something that's so valuable, it's so important. It presents this picture of Christ and the church. It presents this, this incredible melding of two lives together as one. That later pictures how we all become one with him. God doesn't want you to get a divorce. Now, does that mean that there should never be divorces? Probably not. It might be that sometimes the hardness of people's hearts is, is just so profound 
that they will not get along. They will not live together as man and wife. They will not do what God commands them to do. And it might be that there are times when God just says, you know what, your hearts are so hard that we're going to shine this. But 1 Corinthians 7 makes it pretty clear. Hey, even when you have an unbeliever, God, maybe, they'll, maybe they'll change. Maybe they'll repent if you're a good example to them. And that would be the heart of the Lord. I'm absolutely convinced that his heart is for there to be no divorce. That when we divorce, we're generally stepping outside what he intends. Now, can you be married to someone who, for instance, endangers your children? Can you be in an in a, in a unequal yoke that's, that's dangerous or destructive? Can you be in a relationship where there's all this unfaithfulness that actually endangers your life because of not knowing what kind of diseases you're going to pick up and everything? Those all may be cases where the hardness of hearts puts the divorce into the Deuteronomy 24 category. However... There should be, there, there's never an automatic case for divorce. There's never a situation where it's like, okay, there you go, we caught him. A lot of people will look at the Sermon on the Mountain and teach that. But remember the same passage that says that it's committing, that adultery will excuse you for divorce is the same passage that says if you look after a woman to commit adultery, you've already committed it in your heart. So if you're going to take a legalistic approach, do it that way. Just say, you know, I know my husband or my wife lusted. I consider that adultery. Adultery is grounds for divorce, and you're off the hook. If that's what you want to do, if, you've, if you're intent on just saying, I'm going to get a divorce no matter what, and, you know, I have nothing to say to you. I won't argue with you. I've had friends that I've argued and argued to try to get them not to get divorces. And all they did was prolong the agony, and later they ended up getting it and wishing they had done it sooner. So if your heart is that hard... Okay, go for it. If you can honestly say that your spouse's heart is that hard and God shows you what to do, bottom line for me is you need to, if you're even contemplating divorce, if you are even thinking about possibly ripping apart that union that, that God said, let no man put asunder, then I'll tell you this, this should be the time of your life when you are closer to God than you've ever been before. Focus all of your attention on your walk with the Lord. Spend time in his word. Grow close to him. Hold him close. Listen to him. Be willing to do anything that he tells you to do. And then if God tells you to get a divorce, I'm not going to argue with you. But just understand, he didn't want it to be like this. He certainly doesn't want the body of Christ to be ripped up constantly by people casting marriages aside. And I, I, I'm not of the Hillel school. I'm not of the Shammai school. I'm of the Jesus school. And whatever you want to make of that, make of it. But he values marriage, and that's his point. By the way, though, he isn't saying, and I should just, <laughs> I don't know. Um, where it says that if, a, if somebody marries somebody whose husband divorced them, that they're committing adultery, that tips us off to something that what he's saying here isn't that for the rest of your life, you're committing adultery. It's the word there could be translated involves them in adultery. Adultery, the word for adultery, the same word in English, we use adulterate. It means to damage, to muddy, to destroy. And, and really what he's saying here is realize what decisions you make. It affects other people. And it, it has an impact on them. He didn't solve their problem. I wish he had. There are people who looked at what Jesus said and say, he solved the problem. I don't think so. I don't, I don't see it that cut and dried. I don't see either over in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount or here that Jesus makes a clear-cut case. So what I'm saying to all of you who are married, understand this. God wants your marriage to last. He wants it to survive. I don't care what it's like right now. It would be the heart of God to see your marriage last for the rest of your life. That's what he wants. I know that. I'm certain of that. Are there exceptions? Are there situations where we need to allow for it? Yeah, yeah. But ultimately, we all need to look at our own hearts and say, what's going on here? Am I really cleaving the way I'm supposed to? Have I really left all others and, and seen my future as being with my spouse? Now, if that sounds ambiguous to you, if it sounds like, a, well, I wish Dave would just take a clear-cut thing, I, I'm not going to tell other people what to do. 
I'm not going to tell, frankly, Pastor Chuck told me one time when I was counseling somebody in a difficult situation, and I went to him, and I go, man, what do I tell him? And he said, I have a hard time, Dave, telling people to do something that I don't know if I could do it myself. So I want to balance that in there, too. I'm not judging you. I'm not going to, you will never come to me and have me tell you what to do about your marriage, except to point you back to Scripture, to understand what God thinks marriage is, to know that God loves you no matter what. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's true. But I believe that in a, in a world that treats marriage as a throwaway, it's safer for us personally. And again, it's not for you to apply it to your friend. It's for you to apply it to you. You're married, stay married. That's what God's telling you. I won't tell you that you have to do that, but I think if you read this, you're going to see what he's saying. Well, what he said was so radical that the disciples decided, man, maybe it's better, not, better off not even to get married at all. And Jesus goes into this discussion of celibacy, and he said, everybody can't accept this saying. Sure, just not marry at all, that's fine, but everybody can't hang with that. There are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are some people who are born without a desire for any kind of sexual involvement or possibly having a birth defect, making that impossible. I don't know. And by the way, that scripture opens up a whole can of worms um, that we just don't have time to get into as to how people are born and sexual orientation and things like that. I, I certainly don't take that to be a cut and dried thing that some people are just born homosexuals. I don't know. Um, but I know that if someone's born and they're not attracted to, if it's a man and they're not attracted to women at all, then I, I would say, okay, if that's the fact and I'm not willing to consent that, to that because I think there are so many environmental factors and sin factors that affect people's desire for sin. But if that's your case, then there you are, a eunuch from birth. Don't be married. Don't be in a sexual relationship. Don't take the, the, your lack of a drive in one area and pervert it in order to make something else happen. But he says there are also eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. This was a common practice where in order to have a guy that they would put in charge of the harem, they would just fix him. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That is, there are those who have such a commitment. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about this a lot, that they just decide, you know, it's more practical for me right now to be single. I've made that decision that rather than to make compromises either to my ministry or to my faith or whatever, that I've decided I'm going to live single. And he says there are those kind of eunuchs too. But he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. He says, basically, if you have a problem with this strict interpretation of divorce and you can handle not being married, yeah, it probably is better not to be married rather than to end up with, you know, the hassles of a divorce and the ripping away of lives and things like that. And so he says, there are some people that don't need to get married. It's a gift sometimes from God. And if it's better to marry than to burn. But hey, if you don't really have a desire for that, you think you can handle it, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about all the advantages of being single because people who are married are concerned about pleasing their spouse and, and uh, not as much as they should be, but they are. And, and as a result, that certainly takes away from effectiveness in ministry. And so Jesus is saying, actually, there probably are some people that would be better off not being married, Jesus being one of them, although we're the bride of Christ. And so ultimately, he has that. But physically, he, of course, wasn't married. I had a guy... There's a lot to this chapter left, huh? Oh, well, we'll just pick it up next week. I, I had a guy come and talk to me one time who had kind of a cult group, and, and I had had a run-in with one of, his, one of the leaders in his group, and he was doing a Matthew 18 to come to me to, to deal with what I had said to his buddy. And he was, we had been arguing, I think, about the King James Version or something, and I had to chase him off the grounds because he was creating some problems at a pastor's conference. So his leader came in to me, and, and you know, he began to say, and, and they were teaching celibacy. They felt like no Christian should ever get married. And, and so he was explaining that he was a third-class eunuch, but that this guy was a first-class eunuch, and so I ought to really respect that. Like, that's a, that's a great and a high standing. And I just said... I kind of 
knew where he was going with it. I just said, you know, spare me the details. I don't want to know. But the fact is, for most of us, God has created us with a desire and a need to be married. And we need to understand that that's something that he values highly. You shouldn't be ashamed if you're single right now and you're feeling like, boy, God, I wish you'd bring somebody along. That's nothing that makes you a second-class citizen. And it's actually a man finds a wife. It's a good thing. It's good. But if God has prepared you for it or, you know, or, or if you're like when I was single, I used to say, yeah, I can have any woman I please. Trouble is, I just don't please any. And maybe that's the case. <laughs> but ultimately, again, how much do we value this union? How important is it to us? And see, it fits in with the context of the whole chapter. And, and, and it follows along with what was happening in the previous chapter. Because again, the whole, the whole point of us being a body is that we get along, that we deal with our differences, and that we show the world that we can be different. But when we fight with each other as much as the world does, when our marriages break up as much as the world's do, then we're losing our distinction. And the danger of that isn't that, oh, God is shattered by it. It's that people can't see that we're different. And as a result, they don't believe that we have anything to offer them, that Jesus has anything to offer them. You guys, we are to be different. And yeah, you could look at the disciples and what they said and just go, oh man, it's just, this is not doable. This isn't workable. I can't forgive certain things. There's a line I draw and that's it. You step over that line, you're gone. But God can help us to forgive. God can give us a fresh start. And when we have been sinned against, either, either when marriage vows have been violated or when friendships have been betrayed, Jesus wants us to know, I can put you together. Is it natural or normal? No, it's supernatural. But he says, I can do it. And that's the testimony that we are to have to the world. Look at those Christians. They're so different, but they stick together. Look at their families. They have hassles. They have feuds, but they bounce back and they get together and they work it out. Oh, they get in fights with their friends, but then they talk and sometimes there'll be a bunch of them together sitting two of them down and going, come on, we're talking this out. We're going to deal with this. That's the way the body's supposed to function. And that you guys, is an incredible testimony to the world. When we're like that, when we won't accept division within our body, but we deal with it, we, we force the issue if we have to, but we try to push each other together rather than taking sides and pulling apart. Let's pray. God, there's so much in here and so much that we have yet to learn about living as your people. So much that we still need work on in terms of getting along with each other, loving each other, forgiving each other. But God, thanks for setting the bar high. Thank you that you don't ever tell us, well, whatever, just do what you want. But that, Lord, you challenge us to the fact that you can make us so different than the world if we'll just let you, that we can get along, that when we're hurt, when we're offended, when we've been sinned against, that there's healing. God, there are people here tonight who are hurting in some area of their lives. You know their hearts. Maybe they were mistreated a long, long time ago and are just having a hard time dealing with it. Maybe they've done things and they can't forgive themselves for what they've done. Maybe they've been betrayed and made a fool of and taken advantage of, alienated, rejected. But God, they're a part of us. Lord, I pray that you'll help them to come to understand in a loving and a gentle way how much they've been forgiven and to be challenged by the only one who has a right to challenge them, and that's you, by saying, come on, forgive. And Lord, I can't stand here in front of these people and order them to forgive because I haven't done much of anything for them. But Lord, you, working in their hearts, you're able to challenge them to a forgiveness. And God, I pray that you'd be gentle 
as only you can be, and that you would just lovingly hold them close to you, let them know that you'll protect them, that your angels will surround them, and that forgiveness is still the best option. God, help us to forgive. Help us to receive your forgiveness constantly. Heal us. Help us. God, I pray also that in our body here, that kids would be, would remain the priority, your kids. Help us to be examples to them. Help us to love them. Help us to give them the freedom to fail and to continue to remind them of who you are and that we as adults would set such an example that the kids would feel secure knowing that we're not going anywhere. We're going to keep loving them. We're not going to split up. We're not going to break up. We're going to be there for them because we value them that much. Lord, give us the strength to be the examples that you want us to be, please. Lord, if there are kids in our body who are carrying a lot of pain, Lord, hold them on your lap. Hold them close to you. Love them. Help them to be healed in such a way that they're not creeped out at the thought of intimacy, but that, Lord, they will discover that relationship with you as their angels are looking in your eyes. Help them to know that you will never leave them or forsake them. Heal them, Jesus, in your name we pray. And we thank you for being our dad, for loving us first, for forgiving us the most, and for being patient with us when we fail to do so for each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.